Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. Before I get to the poem I usually start off the podcast with, uh, I just want to mention that it was two years ago, on November 1st, 2016, uh, when I first published my very first Dream Gardens podcast. Uh, so two years and 42 more podcasts later, I'm grateful to all those who've participated and for all the listeners, a tiny group though they may be, who took the time to listen in. I hope I've become a better podcaster as time's passed, I, although I know there's still a lot I need to work on. And work on it I will, because I don't have any plans to stop anytime soon. Anyway, uh, the poem I'm going to start things off on this anniversary is called, appropriately enough, Birth. And the poem was written by Langston Hughes, and I found it in the kids' poetry collection, My Song is Beautiful, a poem selected by Mary Ann Hoberman. Langston Hughes, of course, was one of the giants of the Harlem Renaissance in the early 20th century. He was a playwright, a novelist, an essayist, and an activist, but it's mostly through his poetry about his experience as a black man living in the U.S. that he's still highly regarded and read today. Birth by Langston Hughes O fields of wonder, out of which stars are born, and the moon and sun and me as well, like stroke of lightning in the night, some mark to make, some word to tell. My guest today is Kat Shepard, author of The Shadow Hand, book one of the series Babysitting Nightmares, and coming in 2019, the Gemini series. You can find Kat's website at catshepard.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. As I mentioned, uh, you have this book, The Shadow Hand, that came out, which is book one of uh, this Babysitting Nightmares series. Can you talk a little bit about this book and the series in general? Uh, sure, yeah. So the series, um, we kind of sold it as Babysitter's Club meets Goosebumps, and that's sort of a perfect example. Um, and it, the series came about because uh, I was really interested in scary books when I was young, um, but I was too old to hit Goosebumps um, books because they came out after I was a teen. So I was reading a lot of Stephen King when I was a child, which was just way too scary for me. Um, and so I was very interested in the idea of safe scares, but I felt like when I looked at the market and I saw what was out there, it was a lot of books that were geared towards boys where they were scary books, but they had boy characters and, um, boy heavy adventures. And there weren't a lot of girl characters that were doing interesting things. And I thought, well, girls love scary books too. Why don't we have more of that? Um, and I also wanted something that had relationships. One of the things about Goosebumps is every book is different. And so you don't have the same recurring characters. So you can have really terrible things happen to kids in those books. Um, sometimes the kids appear to like die at the end of a couple of Goosebumps books. And so I wanted something where we were connected to the characters and that we, we knew they were going to be okay. Uh, so that was important to me too. So that's sort of how the series came about. And uh, the first book, The Shadow Hand, follows Rebecca Chin. So she's one of four girls who are best friends. Each book sort of follows one particular girl's story. And she's babysitting her very favorite babysittee, who's uh, a little baby named Kyle. And she's really close to the family. She's known Kyle since he was, a, you know, just a few months old. 
And then this night she's babysitting and there's kind of a freak storm and something goes wrong with the baby monitor and she runs upstairs to check on him. Kyle is fine. Everything seems normal, but his favorite teddy bear is not in his crib anymore. And the locked window of his bedroom is now open and there's moss growing on the windowsill and the moss is in the shape of a hand. So that's kind of how the story begins. And then Kyle kind of gets increasingly strange as she goes back to babysit more and more. And then they start to realize, wait a minute, there's something else going on here and we need to get to the bottom of it. So now you said there's, there's four characters and each one will have their story. So we would anticipate three other books in the series at, at, at least. Yes. There are three others coming. I actually, um, the fierce deadlines that I was emailing you about earlier are because of book four. So ah. I'm literally on the last chapter of book four right now. Uh, so book two comes out January 29th of 2019, and that's called The Phantom Hour. Uh, and that stars Cleo. And she is babysitting in this gorgeous old uh, mansion that had been abandoned for years. And a new family has since purchased the house and is fixing it up and really sort of strange things start happening around the mansion to Cleo. So that's what that one's about. And book three, which I'm copy editing right now, uh, I'm really excited about uh, because it takes place in an abandoned movie palace. And I, before I lived in Minnesota, I lived in LA and spent a lot of time um, in these gorgeous old abandoned movie palaces and always imagined um, a great kind of ghost story taking place in those. And book four is Haunted Dolls. Who doesn't love Haunted Dolls? <laughs> now, along with this, uh, the Babysitting Nightmares series, you have another series coming out next year called the Gemini series. Now, you've called it an interactive mystery series. And I'm curious what that means, because I'm, I'm having a hard time picturing what that means. And what does your book specifically um, do to uh, be an interactive mystery series? Sure. This book is um, the Gemini Mysteries. It's a two book series. The first one is called The North Star, um, which comes out on March 5th. And the interactive part is that at the end of every chapter, there is a picture. And in the picture, there's a clue based on what we've just read. And so the reader looks at the picture to find the clue, and that propels them into the next chapter. So it's a way of just sort of keeping readers engaged. There are other interactive mystery series. I'm just going to pause and plug because there's one that does it even better. It's not mine. But Lauren Magaziner um, just put out a book this summer called Case Closed, which is truly interactive because hers is a choose-your-own-adventure mystery series, um, and there are lots of puzzles in it. So she and I have um, you know, been in touch just about this process and, you know, how we, how we do it and how we bring our readers in. So there are a lot of great interactive mysteries out there for kids to check out. On your website, you stated that one of your writing missions is to develop interesting books for a reluctant readers. And I'm wondering, what do you do to create a book specifically for that, um, for that kind of audience, that reluctant reader? Sort of this came about, I was a classroom teacher for a long time and um, reading was something that was came easily to me. I read early and often, and when I became a teacher, and I was working to build my classroom library, and I, you know, I worked those scholastic points, and I kind of pulled everything in, and there were those kids that, no matter how good my library was, they would just kind of wander around, and they had a hard time sitting with and finding something, and so I spent a lot of time conferencing with those kids and helping them, like curating books for them. And so what I found with those kids who weren't sort of naturally 
avid readers. And now we're starting to call them in the education world developing or um, undiscovered readers, which I think is a great term because they just haven't discovered that book that makes them turn the pages. And so with these readers, the things that they did gravitate towards were scary books. They were series books. They loved books with short chapters, cliffhanger endings. Some of those early books that I brought even to do as whole class novels, I brought The Lightning Thief in and did it as a whole class novel because I knew that kids who wouldn't necessarily pick up, you know, a heart-wrenching, beautiful book with a medal on the cover, they were going to read The Lightning Thief. And uh, so when I started to write for them, I just felt like these kids deserve great choices and lots of choices that make them excited about reading. And so when I started to craft these stories, I looked at what they asked for and I looked at what they wanted. And then I worked to give them something that gave them what they asked for. And uh, in your experience, have you come across, uh, besides the lightning thief, other sort of books that you think work particularly well for these, these kind of readers to, to introduce them, to get them excited in reading? Yeah, uh, certainly Goosebumps. <laughs> Um, that was one of them that they always asked for. Those books were always out. Um, they loved the Animorphs books. I remember, again, it's been a while since I've been in the classroom, but series books in general, the 39 Clues was another series that really brought kids in. Again, it was adventure. It's short chapters, cliffhanger endings, a lot of action, very cinematic. Uh, there's a book called The Countdown Conspiracy by Katie Slavensky, which came out in 2017 that kids just absolutely tore through. Uh, as I was talking about earlier, Lauren Magaziner's book, Case Closed, this interactive kind of story where they're solving puzzles and they're doing work. Another one that a lot of undiscovered readers have gravitated towards is um, Jennifer, Bur uh, Jennifer Chambliss Bertman's um, this book scavenger series, which is uh, another book filled with puzzles, lots of adventure. Um, and then also comedy books. I think um, Jarrett Lerner has a great series. The second one is just about to come out. Um, the first one is called Engine Nerds, and it's about farting robots. And a kid who doesn't love a fart, I, I mean, if there may be a kid who doesn't love farting robots, I have not met that kid yet. And James Ponty's series I recommended to my nephew who hates fiction because he thinks it's full of lies. Uh, so I said, well, why don't you try this one? And again, it's a mystery series. So I think a lot of genre books really get kids excited. And the other thing that draws them in are graphic novels. And I think we see that time and time again, just how much um, kids will love to pick up those graphic novels and check them out. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the book you picked as one of your favorite kids' books is Crisscross, as written by uh, Lynn Ray Perkins. It was first published in 2005 by HarperCollins, and in 2006, it was recognized for excellence by the Newbery Awards. Uh, for readers who might not be familiar uh, with this book, can you talk a little bit uh, what it's about? Yeah. Um it takes place in a small town called Seldom um, that I think is in Michigan. And, and it follows a group of 14-year-old kids who are kind of loosely connected. Some of them have grown up together. Some of them live in a neighboring town. Um, and it's really a coming-of-age story about discovering who you are and who you are becoming. Because the concept really is that no person is fully fixed as they are. And everyone is constantly growing and figuring that out. And it's also told not in a traditional narrative structure. It's told in uh, vignettes, which are linked together like puzzle pieces. And some of those pieces fit tightly together and some of them are closer to the edges. Um, and it's just a beautiful, a beautiful way of telling a story. And it's one of those books that just gives you so much to think about that I would read it and then 
write furiously in my journal because I had so much to think about and talk about. As you mentioned, the the plot structure of this book is is unusual. It doesn't seem to conform to what we usually think of as a typical sort of, well, particularly um, uh, a kid's book where um, there's a conflict, one thing happens and it builds to this big dramatic climax as a, a reveal or a reconciliation, something like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem to follow that sort of typical progress that we see in a lot of kids' books. And I'm wondering, um, what is it about this makes this unique and why does it work for this particular novel to sort of avoid that standard um, plot line? Well, I think that part of it is um, that the theme... I believe the theme of the book created the structure. It wasn't the other way around. And so uh, if it's, a, can I read a little tiny? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Okay. So um, towards the end of the book, there's a character. Um, so there are a lot of sort of smaller characters, but the two main characters are Debbie and Hector who um, have grown up together in the same neighborhood um, and who are friendly, but aren't super uh, close. And so we're kind of following Debbie's story here. And she meets this boy named Peter who comes um, to visit his grandmother. And they've kind of had this extraordinary experience together that's kind of a life-changing experience for both of them in a small way. And so then later they're talking it over and he tells her a theory that he's been developing in his young 14 years of life. And he says, I think that it's a good thing to get out of your usual, you know, surroundings. Because you find things out about yourself that you didn't know or you forgot. And then you go back to your regular life and you're changed. You're a little bit different because you take on those new things with you. Like a Hindu, except all in one life. You sort of get reincarnated depending on what happened and what you figure out. One place can make you go forward or backward or neither. But gradually you find all your pieces, your important pieces, and they stay with you so that you're your whole self no matter where you go. Your Buddha self. That's my theory anyway looking at these different kids earning those pieces um, who are taking uh, those different directions and snapping the pieces together into place. And some of those pieces join them with other people and some of those pieces don't. Um, there's another character named Dan Persick, who's kind of a, a jockey guy who's on the precipice of where he could go either way. He could be a jerk or he could be a decent human being. And so we see the different pieces that bring him a little closer to the jerk and a little further away from the decent human being. Um, and there are all these moments where she goes, well, it's not too late. Uh, or another character, Lenny, we kind of follow his story. And there was a point in his life where he loved reading and he loved reading these encyclopedias and he was incredibly bookwormish and brilliant, but he also loved building things and he could figure out how things work. And they talk about there was a moment where his family wasn't a bookish family. They were a builder family and they realized how good he was at building. And there wasn't that teacher at school. There wasn't that science teacher that just saw that he could have been a brilliant scientist. So he kind of got pushed along in this other way. So I think that structure helps tell all of these little stories in a really compassionate way. Along with the the structure of the novel, she does a little bit of experimenting. Uh, you know, some of the a chapter she does an unusual things. Like for example, one chapter she has uh, two characters tell the same story in columns side by side, and you can read one at a time, or you could read them both at the same time, going back forth. Kind of decide as a reader. Why do you think? She does that, and how does that? Does it sort of fit into the this whole? Um, like as you explained, the theme of the book as well. 
I think it captures so much the essence of it's not childhood really because they're they're fourteen. You know, they're that the essence of coming to age, of age and just the way that, first of all, at that age, you're experimenting with who you are. You're figuring this out. And so it makes sense that the book has these kind of different experimental ways of telling stories because these kids are figuring out the different ways they may tell the stories of their own lives. Um, and also the way that, like there's another scene where um, Debbie, the main character, and her best friend Patty are having a conversation in the dark. And at first you know which is talking and then it's just question mark. And you imagine at this point sort of who they are doesn't matter. It's just that conversation in the dark. And then towards the end, then you start to figure out who is who again. And again, I just think those those half-remembered moments or those those times, like the one where they're looking through the yearbook. I don't know if you remember that. And they just have short lines where it says that party when or that that dance when where it's that split second thought if you're looking through your yearbook where you have this memory and it's just a flash of a memory. And I think that that, again, just captures the essence of, of being that age. And you said the, the, what, the main character, Debbie, um, uh, the, the, her opening line is, she wished something would happen. If we talk a little bit about uh, Debbie and what is it she wish happens and do, does something actually happen, even if it's not what she had in mind? Yeah, I mean, it's great. I love that opening scene because uh, Debbie is looking in a magazine and she's wishing that something would happen. And she is savvy enough to know that wishes have loopholes. I don't know if you remember that, where she's trying to figure out how to make the wish specific enough, but not, you know, but not, are there any bad consequences she hasn't considered, like King Midas, and, you know, and she puts it together. And she's looking at a picture of um, like a boy and a girl, I think they're laughing and having fun maybe by the water. And she's like, something like that. Um, so maybe something kind of romantic, something different. And, and I also love that moment because it was in a magazine and it's described as a magazine where it tells you that you should be yourself, but everything else in the magazine is showing you all the ways in which you should try not to be yourself. She's one of the ones we're really seeing putting those pieces together. And so all of these little moments in her summer are building up to this big moment um, where she, her, her neighbor Lenny just one day teaches her how to drive stick shift on his truck. And then a few other things happen. Uh, and then she starts helping a neighbor lady who's elderly. And, and it builds to this moment where she's been helping the neighbor lady and the lady's grandson, Peter, comes. And the old woman, I think she collapses or she has a stroke. I can't remember what exactly that catalyst is. And they realize that they have to get to the hospital to help her. And, and there's only a stick shift car available. And, and Debbie has these sort of skills that she's able to do this heroic deed. And it, you know, it, it helps the old woman, but it doesn't, it's not some huge thing, but it's a huge thing for Debbie because I think it changes ultimately who she is and who she decides she wants to be. Now, the other character who sort of goes along a, a parallel journey, if you will, is Hector. Um, although it's 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 different in many ways, but in many ways it it does sort of run parallel to uh, Debbie. If you want to talk a little bit about him, about his his own particular sort of um, summer of uh, discovery, how you know through his guitar and his music and his own sort of obsessions, uh, how that uh, how that turns out for him. <laughs> well, Hector, oh, he's such a lovable character. So he starts out, he's very close with his sister. And, uh, and so in, in his opening chapter, his sister kind of convinces him to go to this open mic night at the local community college. And it's kind of obvious 
he realizes once he gets there that she's gone many times before. And then he also eventually realizes the reason she's invited him is because uh, she wants to get out of having to go out with this guy afterwards so she can use Hector as an excuse. But while he's there, he's kind of uncomfortable. There's not really room for him at the table. Someone spills coffee down his neck. Um, but then he looks up at the stage and there is a, a young man with a guitar who doesn't look like a particularly attractive, glamorous, charismatic guy. And this guy starts playing and the whole place just goes silent and they just watch this incredible performance. And then Hector has um, what the book calls a satori, this kind of wordless epiphany moment where he's like, I want to do that. You know, I want to be able to have that kind of power. And he decides he's going to learn the guitar. So uh, it, but Hector is such a, he describes himself, unlike the girls in the, na- in the neighborhood, which he describes as caterpillars who are turning into butterflies, he's a puppy turning into a young dog. Just, you know, honest and friendly and just really non-threatening and sweet. And, uh, and he just wants to be something more than that. And, but all of his, initial adventures with the guitar are these kind of awkward <laughs> encounters he's learning in a church basement from this pastor and but the way that he kind of just throws himself into it because there's this moment in the first scene where they are practicing their first guitar song and the Dan Persick is there who's the kind of jerk and that guy's not going to sing along and then Hector looks and he's like you know what I like to sing I'm just gonna I know it's not cool and I know it's really dorky but like I'm I'm in it I'm just putting myself in this fully and so I love that moment because it's just where he realizes like, you know what? This is who I am. I'm this guy. I'm the guy who's going to sing. I'm the guy who's not embarrassed in the same way. And then uh, I think he also discovers over time that music is a way he's able to express himself in a way that he hadn't previously seen before. Um, And just watching how that builds and it builds his confidence. And then there are these other little moments where he just has a kind there's a moment with Debbie where he's helping her out of the car, if you remember that, and she steps on his foot accidentally. And he does a little dance move that his mother had taught him, a ballroom dancing move. And there's this moment where Debbie's like, whoa, you know, this is who, this is, wow, Hector, you know, and he just lets it go. Uh, and I love that we're kind of seeing Hector morph into a young man. He's turning from a boy to a young man. And part of that is through the confidence of music. And part of it is just, um, him just accepting and loving himself as he is. Now, another interesting uh, thing about this book is every once in a while, there are these illustrations, once the author actually uh, draws herself. And they're not just, uh, you know, like pictures of the characters or showing us what's happening in the scene. There's something a little bit different. They're sometimes almost commentary. You talk about what do the illustrations um, bring to the book that the author makes? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the book opens, I'm just going to pull it open so I can take a look at it, with this kind of continuum line. I don't know if you remember that. And it says the spectrum of connectedness. And it shows uh, a line with different, uh, I guess, densities of dots in this kind of dot matrix. So there's this 0% is on one side of the connectedness continuum, and 100% is on the other side. Um, And it says people move back and forth in this area like molecules and steam. And then there's a cutoff line at 0%. And it says, no one is here. No one. And then at 100%, it says, no one is here. No one. And this idea that none of us are 100% connected to one another. None of us is 0% connected. All of us have this moving layer of connectedness. And again, that's a huge theme of the book. And so she has these kind of interesting scientific illustrations 
she uses collage in certain places, old photos. Uh, and I think, again, it, it is because this book so much feels like almost, I don't know how to describe it, but it's almost like a found object in a way because you have these, these vignettes and these stories and these snapshots. And so the illustrations serve as another kind of snapshot um, of putting together this kind of scrapbook of connectedness between people. This might be kind of a difficult question, but usually a writer thinks of a particular audience in mind, although of course you want as many people to uh, to read a book as possible, but you do have usually a, a kind of audience in mind. Who do you think, I don't know if this is an easy question to answer, who do you think the audience for this kind of uh, book might be? It's a really good question because this is, because in some ways I felt very guilty about picking a Newberry. I'm like, oh, this book already got recognition. But then I thought, I don't actually know any kid who's read it. It goes along with this theory I have. I get really upset in certain ways because I feel like once kids hit like seventh grade, in school we're making them read books that were written for adults. We're not really asking kids, we're not offering them quality, you know, YA books um, or books written for young people, we're expecting them only to read Shakespeare and Catcher in the Rye and, you know, The Scarlet Letter. And what I also noticed a lot is that kids, I was a tutor for many, many years after I left the classroom, and I would notice this distinct drop off about reading for pleasure in like 90% of these kids. And I, I worked with kids who were very wealthy and to top, you know, private schools, straight A students. None of them were reading for pleasure anymore because they were reading for school they had homework they had a bunch of activities and so all of these amazing books aren't getting read and i just thought this is i think would be an incredible book to teach in a classroom because i think once because i think an average kid and if you had a kid who's an avid reader they're going to pick it they're going to love it but the average kid is going to be like what i don't really get it and no offense to Lynn Ray, i think she's amazing but i just the kids I've worked with, I haven't seen them like grab this book and clutch it to their hearts. I'm sure they do somewhere. But this just feels like that kind of book that once you got a kid into it and you started having those discussions, it would just be the floodgates would open because I think there's so much that kids can relate to. Um, but I think that's a kid. It's a book that has to be curated. I think we need to guide our readers to books like this. Um, in my uh, last podcast, I, I, I talked about the novel Holes, and I asked uh, if the title of the book gives us a clue where the author wants to direct our attention. I'm wondering, what do you think is the significance of calling this book Crisscross? I know it refers in one thing to a, a radio program, I believe, but um, probably goes beyond that, I imagine, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because the radio program is this kind of melange of songs and funny bits and things like that, just like the book is its own melange. But I think it's also, um, I think it speaks to that interconnectedness. I think it also, it speaks to the way um, we are constantly crossing in one another's paths. But I think also on some level, when you start reading this book, you, you're following Hector and you're following Debbie. And there's a part of you that is like, they're going to end up together and we are seeing their parallel paths slowly begin to become less parallel and they are going to merge and and this like this they they are the each other's person and then you get to this point in the book where that moment could happen i think it's when they're on the roof right on the fourth of july and um and you're like this is it this is where they find each other and 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 i, I wish i'd marked the spot um because that moment passes and it doesn't happen for them and so the and i think of it again as that x that that 
you thought their paths were going to cross and then they diverge again. And that's just not how it's going to end up for them. So I think there's another, that's another level of the title for me anyway. Now, I know you shared a, a small passage earlier. Were there any other passages from the book that you'd like to share? Yes, there's a there's another moment, which is also a bit of a crisscross moment. So Peter, the the boy from California, who Debbie had this incredible experience with, and um, is sort of her first love in a certain way, has gone back to California with his parents, and um, she gets a letter in the mail from him. And there's a moment where her mother hands her the letter. Her mother handed her the letter and leaned on the doorway, waiting to see what it said. She thought it might be a thank you note, though it felt thicker. Debbie opened the envelope and pulled out a letter and a photo. She couldn't help smiling a little. It was the same picture she already had. She explained to her mother that the letter was from Mrs. Bruning's grandson, the one who had been there the day Mrs. Bruning went to the hospital, the one she had worked on with Mrs. Bruning's house for a few days. She wanted to let her mother know that he was more than that to her, a lot more. So she said offhandedly, he was really nice. He was fun to be with. Her mother didn't hear the hidden message, which was, it was amazing and perfect to be with him, and now my life seems dull and empty. Debbie showed her the photo, thinking, this will explain everything. Now she will understand. It was a school picture of a boy with chin-length blonde hair, parted down the middle and tucked behind his ears. He wore wire-rimmed glasses, a t-shirt, a denim jacket. So often in books or in movies, one character looks at another character and understands in a precise way what that person is feeling. So often in real life, one person wants to be understood, but obscures her feelings with completely unrelated words and facial expressions, while the other person is trying to remember whether she did or didn't turn off the burner under the hard-boiled eggs. Helen did sense something, an undercurrent. She thought that Debbie probably had a crush on this boy, but California was pretty far away, and she couldn't have gotten to know him very well in such a short time. Maybe they would exchange a few letters. He looks nice, she said. He's a cute boy. He is nice, said Debbie. It was as close as she could come to saying, I need to go to California, can I? But it wasn't close, not close enough. Her mother had no way of knowing that this would have been a good time to tell her daughter that she had once known a boy who went away, a boy who had made a game of finding little figures of dogs and giving them to her. They might have talked then about how that felt and what you did next, but their secrets inadvertently sidestepped each other, unaware, like blindfolded elephants crossing the tiny room. Sorry, that part makes me a little emotional. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, and I think, again, it's the... Sorry, I was not expecting <laughs> that this would make me so weepy. But I think certainly any teen has that moment where you're so trying to connect with your parent and it just it's like wires get crossed and you just don't see it and you don't hear it. And there are certain things that my mom told me when I was in my thirties, you know, and when I was a teen, I was going through a hard time. My mom said none of those things to me. And I remember when she finally told me one of these stories, I just looked at her and I said, this would have been so helpful to hear when I was 16 years old. And I, and again, it's just those, those lines of connectedness that just don't quite meet up sometimes. Well, Kat, uh, thank you so much for uh, picking this book. For one thing, it's, it's a book I had, I've not had the chance to read yet, so it gave me a chance to read it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about it. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for having me here. It was, it was just a thrill to be able to talk about a book that I love so much. 
You can find Kat's website at catshepherd.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.